Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. And thank you for making time to attend today's session. My name is Joe Healy. I'm a principal consultant within AWS Professional Services based just outside of Washington, DC. And shortly, I'll be joined on stage by Carl Massa, who's the head of hosting for the Ministry of Justice in the UK. And together, we'll be discussing the concept of landing zones, and they're important as you prepare your organizations for the migration to and the adoption of AWS. During this session, we'll be covering you know, a few different topics. You know, first, we want to clearly define what the problem is that we're trying to address here. We'll also try to level set you know, some of the core tenets of what a landing zone is, and also some of the core components that are uh, comprised within a landing zone itself. And then to drive it home and to bring a little bit more color, uh, Carl's going to come up and uh, give a customer use case scenario um, in his support of uh, his customer, his agency. But first, I want to set, kind of set the context of what the problem space is. You know, you imagine at your organization, kind of the doors have swung open, and your organization has the ability to integrate with a public cloud provider. You know, this may come in um, many different initiatives may cause this type of uh, event to happen. Sometimes it's capacity constraints that you're trying to work through. Many times it's cost avoidance, you know, whether from a check refresh or a data center closure or some type of compelling event like that that you have to work backwards from. Also, you want to look at, you know, looking at cutting costs, get a little more efficient with your infrastructure, and maybe looking to adapt to more of an agile DevOps model. Um, and get a little more cloud native wherever you can. Or it may just be a mandate, you know, what, depending on you know, the organization that you work with or the industry or the country you work with, when you may have mandates you have to be, you have no control over, but you must comply with, basically. So there's different options to go there. So you fall in line. I mean, you're a decision maker and you're excited about the possibilities. And you, you know, being an enabler, you start. Um, providing access and tools to your organization and developers, you know, whether they're ready or not. You're trying to move fast and start making uh, progress against these initiatives or these um, uh, events that you're working backwards from. You know, all the best intentions are there, but you, again, you're just trying to move fast. And over time, you know, you might be working fine for a little bit, but over time, you just start getting a big ball of spaghetti. And, you know, there's no concept of governance or standards being followed. Um, there's no you know, repeatability uh, within or consistency being applied to your environments at all. It's a bit of a wild west environment. How you're securing it, you're doing your best. But you can't quite prove the security model you're trying to, uh, uh, trying to achieve here. And to be honest with you, you may have, one of your uh, tenants may have been to drive costs down, but kind of following this approach, your costs actually might, might be a lot higher. Uh, as well, and how you're managing it is probably driving those costs as well. So, and worse yet, you know the infrastructure is extremely fragile, as well. Everyone starts becoming afraid to touch it. Um, you know, one bad move may cause a catastrophic uh, problem, and you know this is something you're trying to move away from a lot of times from your legacy architecture, where you you've inherited there's multi iterations of development teams, no one exactly sure how this thing is actually working, and you, you're just recreating the same problem again, where change is an issue. 
You can't do change in your environment without a tremendous amount of risk uh, and a lot of planning in your environment. So the truth is, you know, a true adoption of something like AWS you know, is, requires a lot of your organization to evolve. A lot of the tools, a lot of the processes, and a lot of the skill sets have to come along with it as well. You know, the, the, a lot of the decision areas that are being presented with you may be causing a lot of confusion as well. You kind of see it as a lot of noise, and you're not quite sure what to focus in on, fear of making the wrong decisions, or not really sure which one to start off with as well. So that's the goal of this session, and a lot of the other sessions that we have going on this week. You know, also working, talking with your colleagues, that, or um, people you're sitting around as well, to get real life experiences of what other people are going through. But the goal of this session is to really help you to provide a little bit more clarity on and guidance and as options, and with Carl, some examples of how you can properly set that foundation as your adoption or migrations start to scale. And that starts with the concept of a landing zone. You know, what, is, what is a landing zone? What are some of the core tenets of a landing zone? Really, it starts off with a lot of the culmination of a lot of AWS best practices. You know, you'll see blog posts, you'll see a lot of documentation, you'll see a lot of things that are out there as far as this is how you should do this, or this is how you can do it. Well, taking those all into account, how do I make sure I'm actually doing all those, basically? So, you know, core component of Landing Zone is trying to incorporate all those components from a best practice standpoint, from a foundational level, and as well as you know, laying out your account structure. It's kind of incorporating that into your solution. It's also not trying to boil the ocean as well when you're starting off. You're starting to look for your common patterns. How do applications interact with one another? How's that traffic pass? You know, what do my software de you know, development life cycles look like? You start looking for the patterns that you're trying to architect for you that are common. You're not looking for all the nuanced uh, uh, details, but you're looking for this, those common patterns that you want to build into your solution, at least from a foundational standpoint first. And you're, you're defining your standards that are documented and enforced and available for everyone to be clear on and understand this is what we're trying to achieve here. But it's also a way of incorporating your governance into your solutions as well. When you create a new account, when you create a new VPC, when you launch a new application, you start thinking about what are my must-haves from a governance standpoint that I need to have in place for my organization. You know, that varies from company to company, but there are those core components, core tenants from a governance standpoint that you need to be aware of and understand. And building that into your baseline from a landing zone perspective allows you to alleviate a lot of that fear and not knowing exactly what other groups are doing. It allows you to help to strike, strike that balance between you know, being safe, which is subjective to your organization, but also providing a little bit more of that agility that self-service kind of capability for your developers to kind of the, the speed to value, basically. But it's also adaptable. You're not going to get everything right the first time. The most, thing, most learning you're going to get is by doing. So you, you set the proper foundation in place so you can actually start doing, and you learn from it. And you adapt your, your, your baselines, and you and incorporate that as lessons learned to kind of move forward with it as you evolve and mature 
uh, with each application or each environment or each organization that you're supporting. And lastly, you want to leverage kind of the capabilities of automation. You know, treating your infrastructure and your baseline as versioned code you know, allows you to consistently maintain your quality and governance standards. You know, adopting automation into your change and configuration methods is a critical shift that needs to be incorporated into your designs. You know, AWS itself provides a lot of tools and capabilities in this area, but you're coming from existing. You're already doing some of this already, and those tools are definitely applicable, at least initially, just to kind of bring things along itself, and you, you just look at them as capabilities. The tool itself that you're actually using to execute those capabilities can change over time, and just but make sure you incorporating these types of practices into your, your baseline approach. So getting into some of the more components, moving away from the tenants itself, is you know, it all starts with how you're using AWS accounts. You know, many times when you're starting off, you have a single account, and you're throwing everything into it. Again, it might work okay for a little while, but as you start scaling, and you need to provide a little bit more isolation or granularity of control or granularity of cost, I mean, there are many different factors, that model starts to break because it's dependent on many different things, but your risk factors are going way up as well. So starting with the account structure, you know, setting up a proper foundation of a distributed account structure, you know, this is just a, a simple one right now, but kind of taking this type of approach and understanding what level of separation I need to have or you need to have within your organization to meet these types of objectives, this is a good start. I mean, this is a good way to kind of start thinking about it, how I provide the level of separation. You know, one benefit is kind of in your baseline, you know, going back to what's my must-haves when I deploy an environment, an account, an application, or a VPC? How do you deal with logging right now? You know, logging itself, it's a nice thing to have. It's kind of a safeguard. You want to log, what, you know, questions asked, what do you want to log? And it's always everything. Well, you know, the reality of that, that's a very difficult thing to achieve. You know, depending on what you're trying to log. Well, taking an account, you know, having a central logging account or a security account where you're bringing all those logs into something like, like S3, you know, whether it's from an application layer, from an EC2 instance layer, or from the AWS, what the, they provide from a logging perspective, provides that capability to get that single pane of glass view of your environment from a logging perspective across your entire architecture, either from security standpoint performance and resources utilization, or from your application developers to understand exactly how my application is working. You want to start thinking about centralizing those logs so you can capture them. Because, I mean, as, because then you'll be able to work, evolve into other models of, you know, how you actually get logs off of systems themselves. The actual server themselves becomes less relevant to you. You don't want to keep that server running all the time. You can extract the logs to get the information on them and also get to the point where you're not logging onto servers anymore because to do troubleshooting. You do troubleshooting uh, outside of the environment to get a lot more uh, uh, security and consistency. The other component that you know, gets a little bit more difficult when you have a single account is getting the granularity of what this is actually costing me from an account perspective or an application perspective. You know, when you have a single account and you are running everything within that account, 
depending on your, your hygiene or your, um, uh, your, from a tagging standpoint and your discipline from a tagging standpoint, getting the granularity of what an application is costing me is, is not easy. It's a lot of detective work you have to do. So one way around that is start to using accounts as that boundary of what an actual, to provide some level of isolation um, uh, from a roll-up from an account perspective, what everything running within an account is cost. So as you start looking at separating either by life cycle, you know, what's a dev environment costing me, what's a prod environment, or from a test, or other types of separation do, you can get a true cost of what that account is costing you. Again, it's fully dependent on how level, how le the level of granularity you want to go to as far as the specifics in there. That's where tagging is still um, a key requirement there. But at least you can start off of knowing what each environment is actually costing you from an account perspective. And the other concept is you know, you're already providing some concept of uh, shared services or common services uh, within your existing environments right now. You know, there's authorization, authentication, you know, Active Directory. You know, you want, you want to try to repeat those as well. You know, you, you eventually cross a chasm where you're not integrating with your services back at on-premise right now, where you're reaching back all the time, where it makes more sense to bring them up to be more co-located with the, your environments themselves. Well, taking that approach is where you start thinking about how can I centralize those services themselves to make available to all my environments. And the types of services, you know, it's going to vary uh, from each, each environment themselves. It could be, you know, the concept of a service catalog, portfolios that you're sharing out that's repeatable amongst. You have monitoring. You have Active Directory. And there's, there's many different types of uh, services that you can get there. But you want to try to centralize those as much as you're, you're able to. You know, while keeping other aspects of you know, administrative boundaries that you might keep you from getting a true consolidation, but it's the same concept of one-to-many kind of hub-and-spoke of leveraging these services, much like you do on-premise right now. You don't want to keep reinventing the wheel every time you uh, bring a new service online. And the last is to limit kind of that concept of a blast radius itself. So going down, you know, there's different degrees of separation you can get with your environments. You know, it starts with an account. And then you can go a VPC level, then you can go a security group level. I mean, you can keep going lower. But the true, if you keep that, all that within one account and you do many VPCs or you do many different types of security groups, you still are sharing the concept of an IAM uh, database, basically. And the mistakes and the risks associated with the mistake from an access control perspective elevate extremely high. So being able to contain the possibility of a mistake happening you know, within an environment, you want to limit that as much as you can. So going down that multi-account path where you have separate IAM concepts helps you limit uh, the impact of uh, a mistake or a breach or things like that. And there's other um, things you want to kind of consider as well as, you know, from a, uh, whether data classification requirements that you have could be compliance requirements that you have to have complete isolation between the environments. There's different reasons to kind of go down a path, but it's really trying to understand what are my baseline requirements as far as what needs to be separated. Um, so going down a separate account doesn't necessarily cost you anything else, but it's just the, it's a little bit of more things to kind of keep, keep in mind, another decision point to keep in mind. So, but when you're talking about identity and potential compromise, that usually comes down to some type of access credential. You know, you want to limit the use of 
static access keys that are associated with IAM users as much as you can. You know, that's not realistic to say don't use IAM users at all because you have different reasons why you want to have IAM users. But we generally want to start off with the use of some type of federation uh, to the environment itself. You already have some type of directory right now. You know, you, when you onboard people or offboard employees, well, that process is already in place. You know, it usually associates to an active action of this user being added to the company, they get added to a directory. So why not leverage that, that workflow already and use some type of federation to it? So that'll translate to groups, to roles that they consume, using more of least privilege to take those actions. And they use temporary credentials, though. You're not using any static credentials at all. So the risk of any type of breach associated with credentials dramatically uh, goes down. You don't have user repositories all over the place as you start scaling your accounts as well. But limiting the use of actual IAM static users is, should be a really high requirement within there. But it also gets your, your employees productive faster as well. They don't have to wait to get access to things. They can log in and assume roles to do the actions they need from an AWS API perspective. And getting a little bit more into kind of the technical aspects as well, you know, going from an on-premise or potentially another provider as well, the concept of how data centers are viewed or the kind of capabilities of what a data center or is treated is a little bit different. It's a lot different, actually. You know, it's a, that's a, one of the key differentiators and key enablers of using AWS is the concept of being able to have multi-availability zones. I won't get into details of what the availability zones themselves are, but you know, at a high level, it's a way of providing enough separation between your environment to alleviate a lot of environmental risks, either from uh, you know, earthquakes or flood zones or you know, power providers or network providers, but also close enough that you can have extremely low latency connections between your availability zones. But when you create a VPC, you're able to leverage at least two availability zones, regardless of which region you're in. And you know, it can vary wildly uh, as you get into larger regions like US East or things like that. You can get much, much bigger. But at a minimum, you want to start building these types of tenants into your designs. Build in multi-AZ into it, regardless if you're going to use it or not. Because there's different reasons why. You don't need to be running EL, uh, I mean, uh, a highly scalable infrastructure to take advantage of multi-AZ. You, know, you could have a single server that you put in an auto-scaling group, and if there's an event or something that causes a problem in one AZ, it can spawn itself in the other one. You don't need to do anything. So you start building in these types of concepts into your designs themselves. The other one is understanding why you create subnets as well. You don't generally create subnets from, from an isolation boundary standpoint. That's where VPCs are for. That's what security groups are for. You create subnets generally for routing requirements, you know, specific routing requirements. At a minimum, you know, depending on your designs, you're going to have public subnets, which mean they have the ability to route to and from an IGW, which has the ability to kind of route to or from public address space. And then you have private subnets, which don't. They cannot route directly to the public internet. They're going to be able to have the routing requirements to go, uh, ability to go out your virtual gateway or other paths themselves. But it's a way of, routing is your first line of defense, generally. So you want to understand what can route where and build to those requirements. But don't 
spawn subnets just for isolation. That is not a good pattern. And one, you'll lose address space. Uh, it just becomes on, uh, a little bit more difficult to manage as well. You want to keep things as simple as they can to meet your baseline requirements. The other one is just to understand what are the ingress egress points to a VPC. As you know, when you create a VPC itself, it's just an isolated island. You can't get in and out of it. So you have to add that, those ingress and egress points depending on the traffic you're trying to control and allow, you know, whether it's an internet gateway, uh, using a virtual private gateway to go IPsec tunnels or direct connect, private connectivity back to your on-premise, or using VPC peering to do that one-to-one -one mapping between uh, VPCs within a, within a region, whether it's in your account or not but also the concept of endpoints, or what's referred to now as our private links, depending on which region you're in. But uh, it's, that's an evolution of allowing you to access publicly, or uh, access services, whether in v another VPC or a public uh, service from a private instance itself. Those are really interesting things to understand. But then it comes down to what's the relationship of those resources running within your architecture themselves? What's the relationship of resources intra-VPC talking to one another? What needs to be co-located? What, just from performance or just isolation standpoints, understanding that. But more when you need to talk to inter-VPC or inter-AWS as well. You know, how, what is that traffic? What is, what is traversing my VPC peering? Start building your standards of what is traversing VPC peering. Maybe it's just your management stack you know, from a shared services, and that's it. No environment can talk. One VPC can't talk directly to another VPC without going through the VGW, maybe back down to your on-premise or to your uh, direct connect to do that type of routing there. So you want to start defining these standards as well. What can route directly to the public internet through an IGW? Maybe nothing. Maybe you, you, you have to do a lollipop and bring all that traffic down and use your own connectivity. Understanding those patterns is, are, is crucial, not only to allow you to scale, to build to scale, but also to manage it and secure it and govern it as well. So building these into your, your, your designs from the onset helps you do that. And the other one is you know, architecting for compliance. What, whatever that means to your organization. Every organization has some concept of compliance. These are, this is your security posture that you're being held accountable to, regardless of what industry you're in. Building for that day where you're actually deploying it is a lot of work. But what happens on day two, and day three, and day four? These are, these are living environments that are changing. Well, how do I know that what I'm actually, how I'm changing the environment, how is that affecting my posture that I'm uh, built for. That's, when you, that's a big differentiator as well and big opportunity with AWS is to allow you to know what's changed and what's the impact of that change. You know, one way is to use some type of concept. You know, we talked about automation before and using infrastructure code or things like that. One way to use that is use some type of CI, CD or some kind of uh, deployment pipeline. You may be pretty basic in the beginning, but at least you're getting those constructs in place, and maybe eventually you reach the point where each time you're checking in a new version, you can start getting some level of automated testing done. 
So you're, you're removing, you're inspecting, you're enforcing your standards from a baseline perspective even before you've done anything. You're inspecting it as it's checked in, and then it can pass through the different layers, and then when it's actually time to actually deploy it into production, you have a high level of assurance. But it's versioned as well. So if you do the deployment itself and something's wrong, you have the ability to kind of go back to the previous version and, and start troubleshooting afterwards. So it's, it's much more consistent and safer way of uh, managing your infrastructure itself. So that's kind of pre, that's pre-deployment. Kind of post-deployment is, you know, where you start to get into kind of the event-driven capabilities at AWS, whether it's CloudWatch events, config rules, you know, using Lambda, as well. So anytime there is a type of change in your environment, instead of hoping it's good, you can actually trigger an event, basically, watching for an API that's happened or running things on a schedule to constantly measure you know, the, the change that's happened in your environment and either alert it against it or do something about it. You know, data, getting alerted is, is fine, but doing something about it is even better. Um, and lastly, you know, kind of getting the concept of holistic inspection is, you know, using that centralized logging to kind of get a view of what's happening in my environment outside my purview of, of you know, what I thought was happening what, and what did happen. But the last line of inspection is doing that log inspection itself. And the last one is understanding, do I need to build these type of capabilities in-house? You know, as I said, AWS provides a lot of capabilities to do a lot of these things from na in natural uh, and um, kind of the tooling that we have. But that does require a little bit of time and education and experimentation and maybe even skill people that you have to hire, which isn't easy to do. And it could take a lot of time. And it may not be part of your core competency at all, and it never will be. So that's where you kind of look at what, are, what can I supplement that with, either from a tool, either from an ISV standpoint. You know, a lot of them will be around uh, an exhibit hall that provide various components in there to kind of help you accelerate and get these types of tenants and components built into your baselines themselves. Then also, from a skill set perspective, you know, there's partners you know, to work with as well, either from uh, you know, dealing with an MSP, a managed service provider, or those that are specializing from a migration competency. When you're evaluating them, ask them, how are you doing this? We will work with them as well from an AWS perspective. You know, we'll work with you together on them, kind of build up that capability. But ask them when you're evaluating, how are you doing these types of uh, tenants and addressing these things as we scale? How are you building these things into it? Oops. And with that, I want to bring up uh, uh, Carl Massa, who's, uh, I said, he's from the uh, Ministry of Justice, and he's going to add a lot more detail to some of the foundational things that I talked about, and he's done. All right, Carl, thanks. Hey, Carl. Do you want to shrink that at all? No. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate uh, having the opportunity today to talk about what we're doing at MOJ. Uh, my name is Carl, and I'm a civil servant uh, in the UK government, uh, where I've been working to accelerate cloud transformation, uh, most recently at the Ministry of Justice, or MOJ. It's going to be a lot of acronyms for government, so I'll try to get those out of the way. Uh, my title there is Head of Hosting. Uh, what I want to talk to you about was using landing zones on AWS, 
how those are enabling our security, product, and operations teams to work together to create a better experience for our users while also improving and expanding our ability to operate digital services. Bit about the MOJ. Uh, we employ around 70,000 staff and are responsible for the prisons and probation services, uh, courts and tribunal service, uh, legal aid agency, among others. So our services are used by people in critical points in their lives. Um, as you might expect in matters of law and justice, there is no shortage of forms or paper or any of those things, but all services are increasingly delivered digitally. Um, digital by default is the mantra from now on. Uh, some of the examples of services we've done are uh, getting money uh, from, prisoners, or fa from families to their prisoners, um, moving prisoners safely, uh, arranging visits um, for the judiciary. Uh, there are services around managing caseloads and workloads for magistrates, that sort of thing. And I'll speak much more uh, about the legal aid in just a moment, legal aid agency. Uh, but you get the point. These are vital services used by people at critical junctures in their lives, and it's sensitive data. It doesn't get much more serious. Um, at the MOJ, we're using open source technologies where possible, and limited operational capacity has developed, uh, evolved a bias towards incorporating managed services where possible. It's kind of the build versus buy thing that uh, Joe was speaking about. Um, Traditionally, the MOJ has outsourced the vast majority of their infrastructure build and management. So <clears throat> a migration to cloud is much bigger than just it's a new place to deploy things. We had to address the security and the operations, ultimately the culture around how we build and operate all of our services. Uh, delivery is a strategy. It was a mantra that launched our uh, digital transformation initiative in the UK government some six years ago now. Um, and while that's great for headlines and getting ministers on board, um, it doesn't leave a lot of room and time to reinvent how we keep the lights on. Uh, and like most government departments, our budget's gonna be gutted in the coming years. So we need to figure out how to do things better and cheaply, more cheaply. Uh, the good news is that we have an ambitious mission. Uh, all official services in a public cloud by 2020. Um, official is one of three tiers in the government security classification policy and it encompasses the vast majority data held by the uh, MOJ. The vast majority of our data would be classified as official. Um, another plus is we're not new to these things. Um, MOJ Digital has been building and operating digital services for several years. There's close to around 100 um, native cloud-born services, but we now need to further accelerate transformation, integrate even greater innovation, and we need to scale the operations around all of that. So we needed an approach that would bring consistency and flexibility and predictability, but still flexibility to the existing cloud structure, cloud native apps, but also be flexible enough to accommodate all these varied technologies that are coming across in the next three years from Microsoft stuff to Oracle, and it's, it's all over the place. So we needed to be able to make some sense out of what we got and, and bring a flexible enough way to do the new stuff. So simply put, we needed much more than a place to just deploy application code. And landing zones on AWS are delivering just that. It's more than a platform for us. Um, we started simple. I just wanted consistency and uniformity in how they built everything. So I keep it simple. Um, so from building the infrastructure to the networks, to the access control, to how we were moving and handling and storing data, I wanted consistency across the whole piece. So it doesn't seem that simple, uh, but actually when you're using landing zones in the way we are, 
codifying and enforcing the baselines and ultimately the policy, as you said, is just a departmental policy, really is what you're implementing. Uh, they were made simple within the landing zones because we already knew what good looked like. We, we talk about it all the time. We just we couldn't really do it and push it out. Um, these are some of the headlines of the, from the first iterations uh, that we did on the landing zones, but I wanted to go into a bit more detail on the last three areas, and that's around improving the security and the culture and the operations around our services. On security. Um, so our tra traditional approach to accrediting and assuring IT systems in the government, in, in His Her Majesty's government, isn't really compatible with how we develop and deploy things in the cloud anymore. Uh, audits and pen tests twice a year just don't sync with continuous delivery, and anybody who's had to wrestle with that knows that. Um, too often, when we do have a system that's been accredited uh, to, to the old regime, we're actually flying blind. So if there's an incident on a legacy system that we don't really manage, then we're completely at the mercy of the system integrator to let us know, are we affected, to what degree, then you have to work with them to agree on timelines to implement the fix, and the, the, the cost of implementing the remediations can be shocking. But for the digital services we do manage, deployed to these landing zones, our security team is taking an approach they call continuous assurance. And we're using landing zones to enable that approach in a couple of ways. So firstly, by implementing and enforcing those security policies and code. There is a non-negotiable ba baseline uh, Joe was alluding to that. Um, we just sort of thought of it as table stakes. If you're privileged enough to use an account at Ministry of Justice as a product team, here are the things that we expect from you, and these are unchanging. You, you can never change these things, and you shouldn't need to want to anyway. So we're talking about access, so we can audit who's doing what. Um, could be simple things, password policies, this sort of thing. Billing, uh, uh, Joe mentioned that. Um, making sure we understand who's spending what and on what. So really just sort of the, the, bare, the bare minimal essentials that you should need to worry about. Um, we've got that uh, non-negotiable baseline. And then on top of that are the most common approaches or solutions to solving architectural problems that we see over and over. That approach is going to be, or constantly iterated on, but it's informed mostly by best department, departmental policy, maybe best approach, but also the cloud security principles, which is a piece of work that uh, NCSC, which is our national cybersecurity center, uh, is, is put forward. And it is basically some guidance around, here's how you should use cloud. So it's up to departments. We take that, we interpret that, and then we say, here's how we're implementing that guidance. Um, so got that, we have the unchanging level, we have the, the, the squishy level at the top that should be always getting better, and then all of it's wrapped up around um, the service catalog. We're able to deploy all these things as templates, and we can push those all out to everybody. The second area, way that we're enabling that security team to realize continuous assurance is that as soon as the services hit AWS, as soon as they're available in there, they can begin turning loose all the AWS bells and whistles and features that you'd expect. And that's all around improving their ability to predict, identify, assess, mitigate, report on everything, risks in ways that just are not possible in legacy data centers. Uh, now a bit about the culture that we're trying to build. Um, our developers are experts in writing application code, and that's cool. That's exactly what we want them to focus on. But in the past, there's been no right way to do things, and the result was that teams invented and reinvented the wheel, exactly what Joe was talking about, over and over again. 
And there was no guarantee that each iteration was going to be better, that it was you know, incorporating standing on the shoulders of giants and, and taking it one step. Things could be not as good as somebody who, did, who took a similar approach a year ago. And I think that's probably just a result of you're instigating, you want people to start adopting cloud, and they're just going to go out. And if you don't have an answer, then they're going to start to solve these problems on their own. Uh, so we wanted the development teams to not only use these templates, but we wanted them to constantly enrich them. So we wanted them to want this approach. Um, so and we knew teams, <clears throat> I know from experience, the teams that you force something on are not going to care about something. They're not going to contribute. They're not going to embrace it. So it was essential that we built in a responsive feedback loop that acts as almost an evolutionary mechanism. So if this works at all, then they will be constantly changing and iterating around the best practice or best approach to those common architectural patterns. Um, we're really, I see this as really building the guide rails. Um, that's all we're doing, and we're not being prescriptive in that, uh, except on those baseline things. Um, but we're doing everything else in collaboration with those development teams. So when landing zones are enable, enabling us to offer the dev teams the right way to do things um, so that they don't have to reinvent over and over. On to the operations. Um, the most common operational things are those stable, the, the, the ones that remain unchanging, those are the stable foundations that the central team that we have at MOJ can manage without creating a bottleneck at all. Uh, based on our experience with cloud native applications, these are the things that have been born into the cloud over the last three or four years, our new old, I guess. Um, that central team was actually managing much higher up in the stack than you might think of a central infrastructure team. So they were worried about application uh, architecture and, and just quite a bit higher up the stack. But for these teams that are managing um, vintage systems, this central team is not going to have the experience. Um, they don't have a bunch of experience with uh, bringing over, migrating some old Oracle and figuring out uh, an efficient way to run it. So in those areas, we're depending on those teams at the edge to come up with the new best way and push that back to the center, we can make that available to everybody via service catalogs. This was consciously modeled on uh, the carrot as opposed to the stick. We said, look, if you do these things in this way, the central team can offer you these kinds of availability levels. Um, we want you to want it, again. So landing zones almost unexpectedly began to provide the real framework that we could put around the service level, rather, that we could put around any app based upon where it fits in the big picture. So if you're using everything that the central team is doing, you're incorporating all those CloudFormation templates, then I don't even need to see your app code. I can probably give you a pretty high guarantee around the resiliency and the availability of the service. However, if you want to go build a Kubernetes cluster or something, go for it. But there's probably nothing that we can really do to help you out around there if you hit a wall. Now I want to talk a bit about one of the agencies within the MOJ that's doing the, some of the most challenging work around migrating vintage systems to AWS and why they were chosen as our pioneers. The Legal Aid Agency, or LAA, provides state-funded legal services to people in England and Wales who otherwise couldn't afford it. It's akin to the Public Defender Office here in the United States, kind of. Uh, however, it goes beyond criminal defense and funds representations in some civil cases as well. These were, can be where significant rights are at stake, um, such as when the state is seeking to take custody of a child from their parents. Um, so these are matters of critical importance, again, for the individuals involved, and it's essential that we get this right. 
As you saw, MOJ is a large organization at the beginning there, and because of the way it encompasses multiple agencies, decision-making is also often very decentralized. Everybody does their own thing. And if I called that siloed, you'd say, hey, that's bad, and it would be. But in this case, it actually worked to our advantage. Because the LAA was completely independent, all the way down to their tech stack, they could change independently of the wider organization, and they could move at their own pace. Another influencing factor in uh, choosing them as our lucky pioneers was um, that we needed to be able to demonstrate value very quickly. And although the LAA's infrastructure build and management was entirely outsourced to a system integrator, they do have highly skilled internal staff responsible for app development and life service management as well. Also, both the business and the technical staff were frustrated by the rate of change in the current arrangement. New features, it took forever to deploy new features exorbitant costs associated with even minimal changes to the existing infrastructure stack. I mean, I'm talking like a DNS change takes weeks and costs hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Um, lastly, and perhaps most importantly, uh, the existing infrastructure management contract will be coming to an end in the near future, and there was no support to carry on for all the reasons I just mentioned. So I got the lucky job. I sat down with the senior uh, technical staff at the LAA, and they were overjoyed at my arrival. Uh, they couldn't have been happier to have some fast-talking American rock up out of nowhere and tell them, hey, you can do things better. Um, it, they actually, no, that's not true at all. They, they, they didn't want to see me, and they didn't want to take my calls or meet with me. But that's not the important part. They were absolutely committed to making things better, and they knew things could be better. So I was just a messenger, maybe a clumsy one, but they understood that what I was getting at was where they wanted to go. So they gave, me, they gave me some time and they heard me out. I got to meet with their technical architects and their security personnel. Um, and here's what came out, here's the difference. Uh, so initial estimates for migrating their stack to AWS were around three and a half years, which really didn't fit. If I showed you that first slide, that was supposed to be everything, not one thing in three and a half years. Uh, so it didn't fit with the mass migration plan, nor would it demonstrate value as quickly as I needed. So we reached out to AWS, uh, and our account manager put us in touch with Anya from Professional Services, who I believe is here today. Uh, I explained where we were, where we wanted to go, and I was probably very opinionated and perhaps rude about how I thought we should get there, but I was very frank in saying that I didn't know where to begin. When you're doing transformation on this level, uh, even the ancient tech will seem like the easy bit. Um, it's the ops and the culture and the business and the executives and the finance and the commercial and the business cases and just on and on and on. And I was really becoming concerned that I'd be working on this for a year and not have ever touched a line of code or actually moved anything. Um, so I had real concerns. Th that sounds a lot like the old world approach that I'm supposed to be undoing. So I brought that to Anya. Um, and that's when she called in the cavalry for us. It was the Engineering and Vision Center team, or EEC team. I believe some people are here today, uh, Malini, Colin, Ryan, Al, and others. Hopefully you can talk to them afterwards. Uh, but from that first engagement with this team, we knew we had a partner in helping us solve the technical challenges. I think on the first phone call, they were asking us for install media for 15-year-old versions of Oracle so they could have a play. Um, we knew we had a partner. And they were able to take some old, ugly Java stuff that was in, balled up in those initial estimates that was, oh, it'll take a year to do anything. I think within week, days of a few of them really hitting it hard, they were able to, to uh, deploy some stuff to AWS. 
And that was like the spark, that was critical mass. That was the spark that lit it all. As soon as we had that internally, we could say, see, we're not crazy, we're not out of touch, it's not that we don't understand their tech stack. Um, look, look at what's possible, let's take this to the next step. We brought back in professional services and Anya, she came, worked with us around, well, all right, well, let's break this down. How many sprints, what can we do, what, when? Uh, more engagements with the EEC team and the legal aid agencies, technical architects, reviewing uh, tools, database migration tools, all the AWS bells and whistles that you'll hear about throughout this conference. Um, and that's the difference. So we went from three and a half years to the core services to finally I got my three little boxes there. In just three months, I got a thing that I can point to a thing and show a thing is actually running somewhere, which again was really, really crucial for me um, to, make that, to make that happen. Speed and flexibility were how they did it, um, or how we did it, but Anya and ProServe especially. Um, we're committed to the goals, but not necessarily the approach at all. Um, and AWS was able to take those lofty goals that we laid out there and work with us to distill them down to practical first steps. It's easy to convince yourself that the challenges you face are unique. Uh, I work in government, I work in justice. Uh, and while your perspective might be, um, the obstacles are not. Um, having experienced people, partners like ProServe from the beginning was essential for us to get started and just grab on somewhere and do something. These are some of the infrastructure headlines <clears throat> that came out of the first iteration of the landing zones. Um, but it's worth noting that ProServe engaged with all aspects of the business. Whereas I was, I have a technical infrastructure operations background, I was much more focused on talking to TechArcs in the LAA and their security staff. ProServe went much deeper. They talked to the user support, live service, executives, business owners that I couldn't even get meetings with. Um, they talked with all of these people and began to log and lay out, uh, you know, here are the concerns across the piece. Here's how we can start prioritizing making changes around, uh, around that we can implement using the landing zones. Uh, they continue to work with us to ensure operational effectiveness and readiness when new services cut over. That's assessing staff, upskilling, training, really everything it takes to make that cut over. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now a bit about the actual landing zones, <clears throat> which is what we're here to talk about. Uh, although I'm not focused on the benefits uh, that have been delivered to commercial teams, it was the same stuff that Joe was talking about. It was essential that we had kind of basic tagging to figure out who's spending what, where. Um, if you've had organic sort of cloud adoption in your organization where you push teams out and went, just go do stuff, um, th that happens everywhere. You don't really know who's spending what or why or even what payment mechanism. You find those, where did that credit card come from kind of moments. Um, and so uh, the billing was an important thing uh, right off the bat, at least to be able to show we were spending money. Um, so we had to incorporate a, incorporate a tagging structure around that. Uh, Multi-account structure, we have functional accounts, exactly what Joe was just describing. Um, we have a security account. And network access, we have the shared services account, um, can be scaled vertically or horizontally for more agents or workloads. Uh, our design is, was, right now, is to have one, we're using one account per environment that could change, but we chose that because we have, again, we have that single data classification which is official, so that, that's why we thought, well, we, we should use that. But, I mean, there's no reason that this couldn't be tweaked and improved to be able to do secret or top secret data in the future. Um, we decided to start with AWS services, so like we knew we were going to have a barrage of logging and all kinds of stuff to manage, but we convinced ourselves in working with ProServe that we should just start with Config and CloudTrail and CloudWatch 
because I was kind of concerned that we were going to go out and buy some big third-party package and not really know what we were even expecting to get out of it not, or not have the time to, to actually use it to, to its full effectiveness. So we just started small and we went, all right, let's see what's coming out of this data streams and what are we going to do with it and how are we going to make sense. Um, we've all, Joe and I think myself, have, uh, mentioned the need for consistency and uniformity. So we need to enforce patterns around how do you log all the things? How do you monitor all the things? How do you alert all the things? Um, so again, that's all a lean tagging structure uh, using cloud formation templates. The vision is eventually to have all tags assigned uh, within the service catalog, I believe. I'm looking for Anya. Um, uh, but uh, there's structure around CICD pipelines, exactly what Joe mentioned, to enable teams to improve how they test. And so we have consistency in how they deploy the initial build and then move it through uh, pre-prod all the way up to prod. Again, all of this will undoubtedly change. I just kind of want to share, here's the first, here's our MVP, here's where our starting point was. This is how we took the first crack at it. Um, yeah, it's going to change all the time. Um, our primary focus when building the landing zones has just been our ability to scale quickly and to be able to evolve to meet the needs of colleagues. Uh, we think we have the right answers for us right now, but your mileage will certainly vary. Um, you know, centralize or localize things depending on your organization's needs or your policies or what kind of resources you have internally, it, however you want to do it. Um, as an example, with the LAA, um, they, they pay out over 1.6 billion pound a year in, in legal aid services. If their fraud team comes to us and says, hey, we want all the payment logs, all the transactions thrown over to this account where nobody can see it, and then we want to be able to turn loose machine learning or something else to understand our payment patterns or detect fraud, whatever, that is awesome. That is exactly what we are trying to do, and we have built a system that can incorporate those changes quite quickly, very quickly. Uh, again, change is the only constant. I'm just going on about this, but um, you have to plan to be able to change things forever and always. Uh, if, if you say, I have a central solution and I'm going to push it out, um, and you haven't built for the evolution, I think it's going to fail. It's going to stagnate. Um, I've got cool bosses at the MOJ, and they accept that what we're doing here is not something that's going to be done, and they can draw a line, and then off of budget it goes. Um, and I know that taking this approach can be dangerous. In the past, I've had experience where you create the hub at the center, and they, they decide how everybody's going to build stuff. And then they start ignoring the edges. And then the, the product teams on the edge start doing what they want to anyway because they have to deliver. Um, before long, you have some shadow IT popping up. And it's, it's right back where you got. So we, we knew from the beginning it's got to be flexible. We've got to build in a way to take that feedback and push it around. Oh, our plans moving forward. Um, so First thing, it's the same thing. We want to keep doing more around enabling and improving around security, ops, and, and ultimately the culture, building this internal culture. Um, I would like to start uh, scamming some stuff out of service catalogs, some other government departments who I've met from here, actually, uh, that are doing similar things. We want to start um, sharing a lot of the, here's our best approach for doing X. Here's how we've done the application or the architecture for X or Y. Um, need to start pushing that around. Um, cost optimization, I mentioned that. Again, we started from a very bare minimum, who's spending what, because that seems like a good starting point. But um, that is another area where I just don't think we've had time to engage with our commercial people. 
uh, I think that once we can start running cost optimization workshops with them, we can bring our commercial people on board to this and they'll see that they have an opportunity here that they never had in the past. Um, our big system integrator contracts of the past were very opaque. It's very difficult to see who's paying what for what, why, when. And I think that's just sort of shut them off over the years. And now I think if we can come in and say, look, we can show you all this and we can have alerts and you can take some ownership. You, you can actually see how things are going. It's not just an opaque black box. Then I think they're going to come around. So that's really important to me. And uh, finally, I just want to wrap up on our learning so far. So uh, move quickly. I cannot stress that enough. Keep an eye on your strategic goals, but demonstrate value quickly. Uh, if you Go away to your boss and tell them it's going to take two years and I need 10 million pounds. Uh, you sound a lot like the old school. Um, executive buy-in, the only thing that's going to garner more attention than your failures are your successes. Do not underestimate system integrators' ability to maintain the status quo. Uh, revolving door decisions, I've gone on and on about flexibility. You can't do this two teams. You must do it with them. That was a lesson I learned. Uh, ProServe helped me uh, understand that. Um, you have to work with them. Um, skills versus managed service. This is kind of a new one we just snuck in there. So sorry I haven't talked about that, but this has evolved over something that we just finished up in the last couple weeks. You may think uh, lift and shift is probably going to be quicker and easier. But I'm, I've just begun to learn that it, it may not be. Um, if, if you think about it, when you're lifting and shifting, so you're bringing over your old technologies, maybe you're just tweaking stuff enough so you can deploy to EC2 or whatever, but you're bringing over the old tech that you know you want to get rid of. You're bringing over the process, some kind of support and policy and operations around that. Um, and I just, we've had a few experiences lately where I really wish I wouldn't have gone, oh, we'll just bring over that Active Directory. Oh, all right, just keep that, um, you know, you keep using their MS SQL server for whatever reason. We should have right away gone, nope, we're going to use the managed domain controller. Or nope, you don't get to run email anymore. That's a solved problem. You will now plug into a managed service. So it, it can seem misleading or backwards, but um, when you're doing the, oh, should I lift and shift or should I really beat this thing in pieces and bring it over? Um, sometimes it's better to take that first step and just go, you know what, I'm not using those technologies anymore and I'll learn on this new platform. And last but not least, ask AWS. Um, don't be afraid to share with them your crazy ideas and your challenges or hopes. Um, they won't laugh at you, or at least they didn't to me in my face. Um, but uh, they have experience. Uh, our account manager there in the UK always likes to say, this isn't our first rodeo. Um, and it's true. Like, it's, it's easy, to, again, to think that, oh, this is my unique problem and nobody's ever had it. We're not snowflakes. They've seen it all a million times. Um, they know how to do the engagement. They know how to get stuff going. Um, you know, in an industry where everybody fronts, um, you guys really have brought a lot to the table um, and it just invaluable experience. So, um, yeah, I can't thank you enough. That's it.